Max, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Kenford. Yeah, great, great to be here. Awesome. So before we get started, I just want to highlight the intention of today's episode. I've personally been at work. I get called out by my coworkers whenever I'm sunbathing in my lunch break, right? And then they come up to me and they're going to be like, man, you're going to get skin cancer if you're out in the sun that long. Do you wear sunscreen? And I tell them no. And they're like, oh boy, <laughs> you better watch out. And so it's like, I under yeah, I understand the concern and the intention, but there's a lot of misconception around this one idea. And I wanted this episode to be that episode you send to someone and perhaps change their perspective. So could you give us an introduction of you know your how you got into medicine, how you got into this specific niche of medicine and an aspect I want to ask to you is how was your personal experience, you know, in that belief? Because I'm sure you were surrounded by it. I don't know if you believed in it initially. I certainly did. But that belief changed, right? And so how did that occur and take place? Yeah, sure. Well, I started as I wanted to do medicine from a I guess in an early age and I kind of got there in a little bit of a roundabout way. I did some basic science research in a bachelor of science degree first and, and then I went to medical school and did some public health as well in between my, my MD training and the prelude or the background to my formal medical education was that I was dealing with some of my own health issue which was a, a dermatologist, we're going to be talking about dermatology. I had my own dermatological issue, which was acne, which is something that a lot of people, maybe your listeners have, have dealt with. And the approach to acne was that I had to experience was very medicalized and it wasn't in any way addressing lifestyle or dietary factors. And essentially I went through a process of many years of treatment with various medications and that essentially culminated in in using quite a heavy medication called isotretinoin or roaccutane accutane it's, it goes by a lot of different names in in a lot of different countries essentially it's 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 the sledgehammer that that we use that the dermatology profession uses to take out someone's acne and it, it works quite effectively it's a it's an extremely potent synthetic vitamin a retinoid which which means it has various effects that essentially remove or deal with with acne and sebum production in the skin to to kind of cure the condition. the The problem with it is it is extremely teratogenic, meaning that it causes birth defects. So any any young women taking isotretinoin have to be on on birth control if they're sexually active. So it's it just gives you an idea of the the kind of degree of Harm potentially that that we're doing. So you can you can often recognize people who are on this medication, whether in high school or university, because they invariably have very very dry skin and they have very dry mm. lips and they constantly got the chapstick, the moisturizer, and they're putting stuff on their lips. And it is a very very characteristic look. So essentially, I stopped using isotretinoin after about three months because it was it had it was having some quite severe mood side effects. The, the whole process of going through this 
as a kind of a patient, you know, throughout my science and medical career, I was training. I was not being told of effective lifestyle things that I could have been doing. And I was eating a higher carb diet. I was never overweight and I wasn't eating junk food, but I was eating oats, which you guys call oatmeal in the States. <laughs> I was eating oats for breakfast. I was eating those cartons of ready-made, they're called up and go here in Australia, but essentially you drink them before you're about to go on a run or a bike ride. So basically a higher carb diet and it was sufficient for me to to contribute to this this problem and the the formal medical training that i was getting wasn't giving me any answers and what didn't offer any any of these ideas which is like okay cut down processed foods get some early morning ir red kind of light on your skin and your problem will go away but that that wasn't anything that i was told in between my visits to the family doctors to the dermatologists. So I basically went on my own healing journey. And part of that was understanding the role of diet and we're going low carb initially, ketogenic and then carnivore for, for a time period. The And it worked extremely effectively. And that was, I guess, the, the journey of me questioning that the model that I was being educated in and understanding that it clearly didn't have all the answers because what why was I having a problem that I was able to fix that I hadn't been told about so that that was the prelude or the background to the this kind of mindset and throughout this journey I mean it's I guess I'm a, a curious type of person and I'm always asking questions and exploring different ideas and within the sphere of I guess metabolic medicine or low carb and carnivore you're always you're you can have other perspectives and Dr. Jack Cruz's perspectives in that kind of sphere. So about a year after doing Carnivore, I was somehow came across his work. Again, you, you don't know the exact point. Some people know the exact point when they when they realize it, but I think I can't remember exactly, but I ended, ended up going down Jack Cruz's rabbit hole and understanding that there's more to the story than just food. Not to say that it's not extremely effective intervention for, for people on its own, but I guess th there's more to the story. So that was the, the the pathway and the entry point for me into understanding, I guess, circadian biology a bit more and delving into circadian biology and and, and more quantum biology. And I'm no expert on, on biophysics and that's something I'm actively learning, but it's it's this interesting facet of health that I think goes so well with, with dietary treatments. So I graduated medical school. I worked for, for about four years in emergency departments and it, I guess internal medicine, you guys call it. And then I've started general practice training, which is family medicine um, here in Australia. And this year, being a, being a family medicine trainee, I've been able to implement some of the dietary and, and light interventions that I've that I've learned and that that make up this circadian biology school school of thought and having great success and really finding that people benefiting a lot from going all the way down to the fundam fundamentals of health and implementing these these really really base layer lifestyle interventions and and finding that they're they're thriving so that's essentially where I've come from and 
at the moment now I'm, I also have a podcast, Regenerative Health Podcast, which is about a year, just short of a year old. And that is also an opportunity to talk to interesting people, talk to people who have experience and are at the cutting edge, and then using those as like tools to help people in the consult because you only have a limited amount of time in the clinic, but you can say, hey, okay, listen to this, this, and this. And it's, it's really effective. So I guess that is, that's my approach. And, and I guess the goal is always to help to, to assist people in the most effective way and hopefully help them avoid the unnecessary over medic medication without give, having also or first being given effective lifestyle advice that could have prevented them or helped them reverse their disease, whether that be diabetes, obesity, fatty liver disease liver disease that they otherwise might not have under an exclusively conventional medic medical model. So in your practice with your patients, would you say that the sun is a main aspect of how you would correct their lifestyle? You like you incorporate sun exposure. Would that be correct? Yeah, and I keep it simple because my patients aren't as I guess health literate or down the rabbit hole as a lot of people on online on YouTube and Twitter. So I just basically say we need to look after your food diet and your light diet. And just like you you can't be eating junk food, you can't be eating processed seed oils, processed carbs, refined sugar, and expect to be healthy. You can't be consuming processed light, artificial light, LED downlights, phone screens, and you can't do that and expect to be healthy. So the the message that I give to my patients is basically that those the, the twofold and certain people will respond better to certain things. Some For some people, simply just going low-carb is enough to sort out all their problems. I had a patient with Parkinson's disease, and the thing that, so, so for your listeners, Parkinson's is basically the degeneration of a special group of nerves in, in, your, in your brain where that produce dopamine, and dopamine is involved in the initiation of movement and he had his his condition was improved the most the thing that moved the needle the most for him was getting out in that morning sun and spending as much time grounded in 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 the morning sun and he was getting his his voice was was being his ability to speak was being lost as a part of the progression of his disease and when he was out in the sun his voice was normal so it was it's just going to show the power of of certain interventions but i guess the the nuance and the skill of what i'm doing is trying to understand where each patient's at and picking the the intervention i think is going to be most effective for them because you know some people are like well i'm not i'm not going to change my my diet they're too addicted to, to carbs or sugar so you know you, they're more likely to perhaps see the sunrise and other people would be like okay doc you know i work a shift work fly in fly out in a mine, so I can't do a lot of circadian stuff, but I'll eat mostly mostly meat if you tell me to. And that, those people respond really well to those interventions. So to answer your question, definitely sunlight and, and circadian biology is, is at the core of, of my lifestyle message. I think that's very, well, in our space, that's very normal. But if a normal you know, a person who grew up under the notion of sun causes skin cancer, et cetera, hears that, that they would probably be very surprised to hear that that is the baseline of your treatment. So let's, you don't do that in a vacuum, right? 
you don't just you actually learn this over a period of time. And so I want to really unpack this idea because a lot of people will try to avoid the sun, the sunscreens, masks, being inside. And I think there's this belief that the sun causes skin cancer, that it's harmful. It's predicated on a couple of things. So the first thing I'd say it's Let's let's take non-native EMF for example. I find that when I before I found out about non-native EMF, my belief that it was harmless was predicated on one, it's not ionize it's non-ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation is the bad one. So if it's non-ionizing radiation, then you go to the second part of this aspect. Non-ionizing radiation is harmless. So it's like a twofold, two steps. And so if I believe those two things, I must believe non-native EMF, my technology isn't harming me, right? And But I read a couple books that completely wiped that notion away. Non-ionizing radiation is very harmful due to the biophysical basis of our biology. And so to take it back to sun, the first thing I would say is this this widespread idea, or it's been found in labs, that UV light causes, I don't know, carcinoma in a skin cell culture. And there it's con- conflated to it will cause skin cancer in us. And that's backed up by our personal experiences of sunburn and if we are in the sun for too long, we get this this unpleasant experience of sunburn from mild to severe. And then thirdly, we have all these, these studies showing statistics that show correlations of skin cancer going up, melanoma going up. And then fourthly, you have the doctors, the media just hammering this message home, like wear your sunscreen, your sunglasses. And it all coalesces to this this very concrete belief that the sun is harmful, toxic, etc. So if we break this belief down into its components, that I think that makes like a good basis of it. And to reverse this whole process, we first need to understand how light works as a foundation with biology because we study biology as a closed system, but biology works in synchrony with sunlight. And so, Max, could you firstly to, to firstly correct this notion of sun being harmful? We need to lay the foundation of specific specifically red and UV light, their mechanisms, how they drive our biology and are beneficial to it. So there's bioenergetics, there's repair, there's all this stuff. So you can go ahead and, you know, communicate that how you want, but let's paint the picture of light being the foundation. Yeah. And it's, it's a very broad topic and there's so many aspects to this, but I I like to really use an evolutionary lens as a, as a starting point, Mm -hmm. because when people understand the, critical absolutely indispensable 
role of sunlight in the evolution of complex life on Earth, then the idea that sunlight is inherently harmful becomes untenable if you if you truly understand what what is actually going on here. And we can, we, I mean, we can take it all the way back to the the evolution of of single cellular life that demonstrates circadian very ad- adaptations to a circadian ability to maintain a circadian rhythm and by by saying that is because as we found melatonin the, the substance melatonin in primitive bacteria primitive archaea that date back you know to 2.4 billion years and the reason why is because they're using it's a marker that they're making adaptations to their environment that is fluctuating in its environmental characteristics between day and night and if you you there's temperature change if there's light change between a day and a night then you're going to need to adapt your organism to make sure that you're most fit for that for that environment so the the fact that melatonin is is expressed and secreted in a circadian way diurnally in in a way that's conserved from such primitive bacteria even before we were endosymbiosed mitochondria became became endosymbiosed into cells to form more complex life then to me that is immediately showing that we we rely on on sunlight so if we if we take take that progression to the next step so 600 million years ago we were around we were endosymbiosed which meant one organism ate i believe it was a form of rubrobacterium some kind of sulfur forming bacteria and they these two cells joined forces and the rubrobacteria became a mitochondria and they decided to well they specialized in the energy production of the cell and then you know you you fast forward another 100 100 million years and there was the evolution of this gene called proopium melanocortin and to keep it really simple for for people i i think of it as a very long carnival ticket and it's actually actually a hormone that gets produced in a range of tissues in in humans it gets produced in our brain in our skin in in many cells and you think of it like a long carnival ticket and if you cut this carnival ticket up into different pieces then each different ticket can get you entry into different kind of carnival fair depending on what what location you're in means that if in the brain you can the pituitary gland you're going to cut it up into a different piece and you're going to get something like acth or adrenocorticotrophic hormone or if you you cut it up somewhere else you in the hypothalamus you might get alpha msh which is has a role in in satiety and and feeling full and then if you cut it up in a different place in in maybe in the skin you're going to get something like beta endorphin which is an opioid like chemical so 500 million years ago we evolved this this very long poly well it's a polypeptide hormone and the key point is that that is stimulated by uv light so you're going to produce this this pro-opium hormone in response to UV light, and the reason why this is so important is that it governs so many different aspects of biology. This one polypeptide hormone, as I mentioned, ACTH is is related to the hypothalamic pituitary act, adrenal axis. So our stress response is is critically linked to this whole body energy metabolism, or how an organism regulates how much 
energy has got on board. So, so some of your listeners might know about the leptin melanocortin pathway. So, so this is a central thermostat or regulator of how much energy we're, we're carrying. That, again, that is is going to be influenced by some of these POMC cleavage products. And then what, what I mentioned about beta endorphin is endorphins are a, your body's way of telling you or rewarding you for doing something that is good for your biology. So if you if you get in the sun and you pr- produce and cleave pr- POMC into an opioid-like chemical, then you're going to feel great. You're going to literally be addicted to the sun. And you can see how, and Jack Cruz makes this point quite quite insistently, that you can see how something like a opioid epidemic makes more sense if people chronically avoiding sunlight and therefore deprived of their naturally produced opioids, which are cleavage products of, of POMSI. So that's, that's a prelude 500, 400 million years ago, these jawless fish evolved this this polypeptide hormone. And then we evolved out through amphibians and then became mammals. And we've conserved this, this ability, this polypeptide hormone, because sunlight is so critical to to our biology so that kind of brings us up to us as kind of as as mammals and what what is also relevant is that POMC is not the only hormone or mechanism that we have to respond to uv light and and remember uv light is what is being demonized here uv as part of natural sunlight is what we're being told to avoid at all costs so not only do we have this master regulatory hormone that is being modulated by UV light, but we also have what are known as non-visual photoreceptors. And basically what that means is that your eye has visual photoreceptors. So the, the reason why I can see you, Kem, for now is because my visual photoreceptors are giving me an image. There's about 2% of the neurons in your retina perceive light but they don't perceive shape or vision and that these are called non-visual photoreceptors because they're still perceiving light but they're not telling me that there's you know a pair of glasses and a microphone and and an, and, a, and a man sitting opposite me they're, they're simply perceiving light and the absence or presence of certain wavelengths of light and this was this was discovered because they realized that people or certain Rats could, depend. Well, I'm trying to think of the exact experiment, but essentially you could lose a bunch of your, your visual photoreceptors, but these rats would still respond to light cues. So they would still have an intact circadian rhythm because they were detecting the presence or absence of, of blue light that helped them entrain their circadian rhythm. And that stopped the practice of inu, what was called enucleation, which was <clears throat> removing the eyes of blind people. I think that was a practice for a while. You know, medicine's done a cra- bunch of crazy things. You know, someone won a Nobel Prize for lobotomy, so that gives you an idea about how how the we, we used to do things. But essentially, we stopped doing that because we realized that even if people had lost their visual photoreceptors to see and become, became blind effectively, there was it was important to leave their eyes in because if those non-visual photoreceptors <clears throat> were intact, then people would still be able to have a normal entrained circadian rhythm and therefore go to sleep at the right time. And it's obviously critical for health. So the non-visual photoreceptor system basically takes the presence or absence of certain light wavelengths and then feeds that into the brain 
into what's known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus and through what's known as the retinohypothalamic tract. And to, to do that is allows it to coordinate all the body functions in response to the changing environment, which is the presence and absence of light. Remember, solar, the sunlight and, and solar light is still this, this, the, the main thing that is governing our biology, and it's helping us to adapt to, to these changing conditions. So think about the way that, that the body is using that is, is it can see if there's blue light, if, if you're using, if certain non-visual photoreceptor called melanopsin detects the presence or absence of, of blue light. And the, the reason why that's relevant is because blue light is most present in, at, at noon in, in the middle of the day. So we need to be doing certain things like hunting, like finding food, like being active. That, that, is, that way of entraining our biology is through melanopsin to give us that midday signal. But the, and, and to give you, your listeners even further depth of analysis on this, it is thought that we evolved melanopsin in a very, very ancient way because it was the blue wavelengths of light that were able to penetrate down into into the ocean so again the oceans was where where life evolved so even these planktons and these incredibly primitive life forms were still having circadian entrainment and they were having entrainment through melanopsin and which was a blue light detector because the other wavelengths of light um, the infrared is getting absorbed very 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 high up by, by the water but blue was was being being able to penetrate up to 100 meters or so so Again, let this, we're building a story for your listeners that this is how important sunlight is for, for our biology. It's, it's that, that old. It's that ancient. So not only do we have blue light detectors in, in our eyes, but we also have a bunch of non-visual photoreceptors that, that take in ultraviolet light. So neuropsin detects ultraviolet light. So again, this is like a, a stop point for people who think that UV light is inherently harmful, and this is the first belief we're kind of breaking down, is that if ultraviolet light from the sun is inherently harmful, why do we have pro-opium melanocortin that is so critical to running all our, our body system? It's like calling Microsoft Microsoft Windows a virus. I mean, how, <laughs> how, how, how for the computing people out there, how, how could the prime op... Hmm, Operating system be of malware. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> so we've got proopium melanocortin, and then we've got neuropsin. So why would nature have given us a UV light detector specifically if it were if it were inherently harmful? Again, it doesn't <clears throat> it doesn't make a, a lot of sense. And in, essentially, these non visual photoreceptors are ways of helping us become more adapted and more fit to the changing solar conditions because. Throughout the, the day, that the sunlight is going to vary in the wavelengths of light that, that hit the earth, depending on the time of day. So for your listeners, the morning on sunrise is going to, is a lot of red, a little bit of blue infrared light, which is a, a non-visible form of light that's even far further beyond red. And then, then we get ultraviolet A light. So ultraviolet is below, below 400, so at 200, 200 to mid. 350, I believe. And then we get ultraviolet B. So ultraviolet B is where you start making vitamin D. And that is the most, I guess, carcinogenic type of UV light that most people are trying to avoid. And then 
Solar Noon is you you've got peak of blue, but it's always balanced with red. You've got UVB and you've got a bit of bit much less UVA. And then that that process kind of reverses itself from noon solar noon to to the end of the day. So what what again we're painting this picture is that nature doesn't make mistakes. Nature never makes mistakes. And humans have evolved just like other organisms to be in primarily adapted to their environment. And you can see how we might evolve these these light and non-visual photoreceptor systems is because if they're improving our fitness as mammals and as as animals to survive in our environment, then they're going to be conserved and they're going to be preserved across across evolution. So that's essentially a bit of background about what what are the, the natural mechanisms that we have to to defend our, or to use sunlight. So we've, we've got propionylacortin. We develop we're secreting this key opioid hormone in response to in response to UV light exposure. So then, so I guess going more more mechanistically, the question bears out is like, okay, well, do, is UV light a damaging? Well, the answer is yes. The, so you, ultraviolet light will cause DNA strand breaks if you're if you're exposed to it, and that. So I guess that there is a half truth in terms of the, the the messages about the damaging effect of ultraviolet light. But the answer to this question is that we've evolved mechanisms to adapt, defend, repair the damage that is done from ultraviolet light. And that is part of, of the adaptions that human that mammals and, and humans have made. And to to give you an idea, essentially we developed this hormone or this compound called melanin. And again, melanin is highly, highly, highly conserved across species. And Anytime you see coloration in nature, is is nature is using melanin to color to, to color in these these animals, but it's not only got a color form or function. It it acts as an ability to absorb ultraviolet light and dis- or any form of light. So it's black, meaning that it can absorb all of the wavelengths of the ele- electromagnetic spectrum. So, but one of its chief roles is absorbing ultraviolet light and then dissipating that energy as heat. And certain fungi have even evolved an ability to absorb all kinds of radiation using melanin to then make energy. And there is a role in in humans as well. And this is called human photosynthesis or so-called human photosynthesis, which is the ability of humans to actually take light and and sunlight and use it to essentially derive energy from from the water molecule but the the point is that melanin is secreted to protect the dna and to protect the cell and melanocytes which are a type of cell that sit inside our skin layer essentially send out blebs of of melanin to to protect the the keratinocytes which are another type of of, of cell the interesting thing that people will will know, and let's bring it back to POMSI, is that POMSI is the signal. When POMSI is cleaved into alpha-MSH, alpha-MSH stimulates melanin production in, in melanocytes. So again, this is tying proopium melanocortin back into the story, which is that it's the same compound that is making us addicted to the sun when it gets cleaved in one way is also 
giving us the tool to defend ourselves against ultraviolet, ultraviolet light. The, and there's a range of other defenses that, that have, and, and that is essentially the, the skin cells have become, when they essentially die and they become a form of protective layer. So as they, if you imagine just layers of protection of armor, the, the top layers of skin on, on your, your epithelium, it actually, the cells have died and their DNA, even in the dead cells, actually can absorb ultraviolet light as well, which is a form of natural sunscreen. So we've got, we've got all these adaptations to the, to defending ourselves against the ultraviolet light that would, would be present in natural sunlight. The other aspect to it, again, and this is relevant, is that the rays that you get in the morning to the infrared and the red are going to precondition the skin and prepare your skin for the later exposure to ultraviolet. So, and this is going to be relevant when we talk about how things have gone wrong in the, in the modern world, but most people don't get that early morning sun, red, red and infrared exposure. They simply go right into the midday. You know, think about a tourist that gets off the plane in Bondi Beach in Sydney very quickly looks like a prawn, a piece of shrimp, <laughs> because they they haven't used the sun properly. They've got no solar callus, and we'll talk about solar callus. But the the point is that think about how ancestrally we would have used the sun. And there's there's a group of primates in Ethiopia, and every single morning they climb to the highest point of the mountain to watch the sunrise. Like that is what they do every single morning. And we we would have been the similar ancestral humans would have watched the sunrise. We would have had natural varying wavelengths of sun from starting with red and, and infrared and then going all the way up to UV and then back down. And this is how we would have used the sun and this is how the body is adapted to use the sun. And I'm not sure about you, Kemper, but I've can, I know very, very quickly that if I've, when I've exposed myself into morning sunlight, I'm much, much, much less likely to burn quite, quite noticeably. And I've been around friends and we've had been vastly different in, in our propensity to burn, even though we've got a similar Fitzpatrick skin type. So it's, mm-hmm. it's something that we, we learn about. You can see for yourself after, after a while. So we've, w- I think I painted enough of a picture for your, for your listeners that we, we, the sunlight is key to, to life and it's about how we're, we're using it therefore wrongly that, that I might say, that is contributing to to skin cancers. And basically, there's three different types of skin cancers that we're dealing with here. There's squamous cell carcinoma, there's basal cell carcinoma, and there's melanoma. And melanoma is possibly the one that, it's the one that we're most worried about. And when people come in to get their skins checked, that is the one that that we're most concerned because it has a a very, very high, it's, it's a propensity to metastasize and it can be, quite deadly basal cell is very very much more slow growing and squamous cell carcinoma can be quite metastatic and dangerous but in terms of hierarchy of things that we're worried about the melanoma is right at right at the top so the incidence of these skin cancers has been increasing and particularly melanoma and particularly in people that don't appear to be that sun exposed so we've we've got this situation where melanoma incidence is rising despite advice to you know slip slop slap which is defend yourself against all aspects of of 
ultraviolet and, and other forms of sunlight. And we're faced with this question then is like, okay, well, what is actually going on here? Is the sun causing skin cancers? And again, before we go into the details, I really, you asked me to, to paint a broad picture and we'll, we'll, we'll do that, is that let's look at some of these long-term epidemiological studies. And one of my favorite ones is a Swedish study from, I believe it's 2016 or 17. And they looked at healthy behaviors in women in Sweden who smoked, who who sunbathed intentionally and those who didn't. And essentially over a longitudinal period, the women who actively avoided the sun, their mortality was equivalent, who actively avoided the sun and didn't smoke was the same as those who smoked but but intentionally exposed themselves to the sun. So that 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 was such an elegant way of, of indicating the magnitude of effect that we're dealing with here. So you can you can smoke and to some degree is mitigated if you're exposing yourself to the sun or depending on how you want to look at it. But that really flies in the face of the advice that we're talking about to avoid it at all costs. And there's clearly a health benefit here. So what? Wh- why has things gone wrong? Why are people getting damaged or what, what, how are they using the sun in, inappropriately? And I think it is possible to use the sun inappropriately if we haven't developed what's known as a solar callus. And the solar callus, and for people who don't know, you know, you develop calluses on your fingers when you've lifted a barbell in the gym for, for many weeks, and it's a, a form of a protective mechanism. And the, 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 you, don't, you wouldn't cut your calluses off because if they're mm-hmm. providing benefit, just like a tan is, is actually a, an adaption a to the hormetic stress, which was the sunlight exposure. So a solar callus is a tool of basically harnessing that sunlight in a way that is not is minimally harmful. So what, what that involves or what that means is that we have cultivated melanin in our, in our skin. We've developed our, our ability to expose ourselves to sunlight and ultraviolet light without burning. And the way this works is that we progressively and expose ourselves to ultraviolet sunlight, starting first with the sunrise in, in the most benign and non, non-damaging wavelengths of sunlight, which are red and infrared. And if, if anyone's in doubt about how beneficial th- those wavelengths are, you go, go and look at the whole field of photobiomodulation. There's whole companies who've made, you know, profits and and helped people by making panels that isolate red and infrared light and people people's wounds heal better people recover better from sport people use it for hair loss there's a bunch of benefits you get from using red and infrared light in a photobiomodulation panel the point is you can get it for free from the sun and that window is between sunrise and uva rise depending on where you are in in the world so the, the the key to building your solar callus or using the sun properly is by getting that early morning sun prior to the, the ultraviolet light. But again, people haven't been using the sun correctly in, in our modern age. And let's, I guess maybe we can talk through some of the things that they, they haven't done, which means that they, they've got an atrophic skin and their skin is not prepared to deal with the stress of of ultraviolet sun exposure so that if they are exposed, 
it is more likely to be damaging in in the long run. So the basically the, the couple of things that I'll go over, Kenford, and you, if you want, we can go into depth more. But the elephant in the room is the fact that peop, most people these days are under artificial blue light all day, and their skin is being exposed to artificial blue light without red or or ultraviolet. So that that is kind of the the elephant in 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 the room. Their circadian rhythms are often disrupted, and they're not making that key melatonin hormone that we need for body repair, especially over overnight. They're eating a diet in the US, UK, everywhere. It's rich in linoleic acid, which is plant derived. Uh, it's predominantly a purified plant seed that is rich in the omega six fatty acid linoleic acid, which is essentially disturbed the evolutionary ratio of polyunsaturated fatty acids in our body, in our skin, to one that is very much favored in omega-6 and much less in omega-3 because people are eating processed foods with rich in seed oils and they're not eating as much fish or animal-derived sources of of omega-3 like DHA. So we've got artificial light exposure, we've got circadian disruption, we've got omega-3 to 6 ratio, which is completely out of whack. And then we've got the uses of, of things like sunscreens. And it's a controversial point to, to say that potentially sunscreens have been contributing to the development of skin cancer. But when we look at how these, these molecules and chemicals are working, it kind of makes a bit more sense because essentially these skin, skin sunscreens block ultraviolet, but they don't block any... Of the, they don't block visible light is the ones that just kind of rub in and, and dissolve in your skin. So what they're essentially doing is, and, and they mostly block UVB and less UVA. So if people are going out in the sun, they turn off their ability, their body's ability to know that they've got enough sun, which is sunburn. It's a natural like warning mechanism that hang on, we've got too much sun for our for our skin type at this point. You should go inside. So you're turning off that mechanism when you're using a UV B-blocking sunscreen. But the, the problem is there is oxidative stress caused by visible light. You know, I spoke to Scott Zimmerman, who's an optics engineer about this, and you essentially turning off that body's ability to know that it's being burnt, but you're not doing anything for the fact that your visible light is also causing damage to, to your skin. So, the and, and there's other aspects to it. There's a possible concentration of of metabolites of sunscreen because the uv light is breaking down the sunscreen and to what degree are the metabolites of the sunscreens causing oxidative stress in in the skin so it's it's a it's a profoundly unevolutionarily appropriate way to use the sun if you think about what we've talked about for the first part of this interview is that to to use an exogenous chemical that we never use in our evolutionary past that is potentially breaking down into products that have unclear implication for human health and then concentrating non-visible like blue wavelength and violet or whatever else in in that skin layer without without uv in in a context that is completely unnatural and unevolutionary appropriate so that's my take on sunscreens and one one key hormone in sunscreens or ingredient was is oxybenzone and i believe the hawaiians in, in your country the hawaiians banned the use of oxybenzone sun, in, in sunscreens because it was killing their reef. <laughs> so th- mm. that's another whole aspect to it is the endocrine, endocrine disruption properties of these sunscreens. So we've got 
sunscreen and then we've got sunglass usage and again this is kind of a comp- controversial thing to say but the the blocking of your of the perception of uv light through the eye is potentially impeding your body's ability to deal with the hormetic stress of uv light by sending an incongruent message between your ocular non-visual photoreceptor system and your cutaneous non-visual photoreceptor system so if those messages are different because your eyes are not getting any ultraviolet light at all because you've got a pair of shades on and but your skin is getting that that signal that the the potential is there that you're paradoxically more likely or more inclined to to sunburn because again you're messing with your body's naturally evolved mechanisms of homeostasis so that is, I guess, a prelude and maybe the last point about it is that if there's a mismatch between someone's skin type and the latitude, then they're more likely to be using the sun in a harmful way. And, and like I talked about the tourist getting off the plane from, you know, grainy cold England and just baking in, in the Australian sun on Bondi Beach, they they haven't built up a solar callus. They, their circadian mechanism is highly disrupted because they have simply flown across latitudes and time zones. So they've got no defenses, I guess, to this, this sun exposure. So to paint this whole, whole picture for you or, or distill it down for the listener, you can't expect to eat a junk, a junk light diet your whole life and then be able to use the sun safely. It's just, you, it's not going to happen. You're going to be coming, coming into problems. So I think a lot of, where the message around skin cancer and sun use has come from, again, in, in terms of half-truths, is that it's the people people's inherent lack of adaptation that makes something as life-giving and essential as the sun toxic. Yeah, thank you for painting a very big picture, very big comprehensive picture of this whole topic, and that just illustrates that the sentence, the sun causes skin cancer by itself is incorrect in the sense that it's super reductionist. There's there's no nuance. There's no context. If that statement was true, you'd have to say, okay, the moment UVB hits your skin, it's synthesizing cancer cells, which is just not true. Then you say, okay, DNA damage, et cetera. But then you elucidated all that where we have intrinsic mechanisms that protect us against that. And so I just want to recap what what he said. So first of all, he laid out evolution, proof of work in evolution. That is something that when I talk to people about this, that they usually can't, you know, argue with, right? Obviously, the earth was made by the sun. And then it goes to a conversation of, okay, you're right. But the dosage is what matters. We'll get into that later. But I never heard of the analogy with Microsoft before. It was it was wonderful. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that from you. Yeah, go for it. But essentially, we have all these biology is studied in a closed system, but with quantum biology, I realized there's a there's a primordial factor which is light. So you have the circadian mechanism, the the leptin melanocortin pathway, POMC, three very key mechanisms that run a cascade of hormones and 
biochemical functions in your body all evolved and developed with sunlight over millions of years, over multiple species and generations of life. That is something one cannot argue with, right? And to top it off, you have POMC. So when we use interventions like sunscreen and sunglasses, sunburn is our natural you know, way of warning that, hey, this is a little much. You can go in the shade now. But if you use a sunscreen, you block that mechanism. Another mechanism that we use to protect ourselves from the sun naturally is, like you said, through the ocular through the ocular perception, not visual perception, but registration of UV light through our eye. The more intense, the more UV light our eye registers, the more POMC it makes, the more alpha MSH is clipped and more melanin is made. And that the more UV light in that the environment, the more melanin is made via POMC. That's another mechanism that we have evolved for sun and sunglasses just completely block that. It if there's increasing UV light environment, your your body's not making any POMC because you're blocking it with that with that those sunglasses and any glasses because ophthalmology has demonized UV light. So every eyeglass manufacturer blocks UV light. You also touched on red light how red light helps the bioenergetics of the body, how there's a whole field that is completely sweeping, you know, the literature about how beneficial this, this slide is. And I watched your episode with Scott Zimmerman. It was super interesting. And a point I want, I want to transition this into is so we have lived in blue light and the more significant aspect of this is there's no UV light. There's no red and infrared light. It's just blue. So we've lived in this environment and despite us doing a very good job at avoiding the sun, we do a great job. I don't see many people, you know, bathing in the sun like, like I am, right? We melanoma incidence has increased and I find it very interesting that the two frequencies of light that make melatonin are UV light and infrared light. So UV light through your eye will change aromatic amino acids and through your the pineal gland that, you know, amino acid reconversion will make melatonin there. But as Scott Zimmerman laid out in his in Max's podcast with him, red and infrared light on the skin actually makes melatonin in your mitochondria. I'm bring I'm highlighting melatonin because Max laid out a very over a general story for sunlight. It's essential to life, the baseline of life. And I want to tie this into the the mechanisms of cancer because a big factor of cancer is a dysregulation of apoptosis. And melatonin is what controls apoptosis. So we live in an environment that is completely deficient of the two light frequencies 
that enable apoptosis through melatonin. So I find that very, you know, when you find out the mechanisms of the body and which light frequencies make what, then it becomes very enlightening to see that, okay, this there's more to this story. So could you touch on this melatonin point, you know, of apoptosis, dysregulation, and perhaps bring in the fact that melanoma patients have a low vitamin D level. And yeah, happy to. And I would, that's a great point to raise because again, we're, we're, it's raising cognitive dissonance for those who, mm-hmm. for the, for those who would insist that it's sunlight that is the main problem here, because what we see is that patients who have, who develop melanoma almost invariably have a low vitamin D level. And a low vitamin D level is associated with progression to metastatic melanoma in the patients that already have have melanoma. So w- the reason why this is should be confusing or for anyone who's thinking logically this is a problem is because vitamin D is synthesized in the skin on exposure to UVB radiation. So if UVB is causative of melanoma, then why do patients with melanoma overwhelmingly have low vitamin D level? So it, it's, it, it's, again, it's something that doesn't really com- compute. And cumulative sun exposure seems to be protective, meaning that the people who do have healthy sun exposure throughout their life, it's probably protective for, for melanoma. So again, that's, that's a point that we really need to, to harp on and point out. And I, I like to point out to my colleagues because that's not something that they think that they think about. And in Australia, you know, lots of mel- melanoma or s- suspicious lesions that could be melanoma get cut out. But I don't really think that most clinicians that I, my colleagues are really thinking about something like sun exposure or, or the amount of um, vitamin D the patient ha- has had. To, to talk about melatonin, and it's, it, it, it's fascinating and I, I really recommend people listen to the episode with Scott Zimmerman. But essentially, he broke down the idea that melatonin is produced in two separate pool, pools, so to speak. So mm-hmm. the, the classical no, knowledge of, of melatonin is that it's this hormone of darkness. It's produced a couple of hours after sunset when those melanops and non-visual photoreceptors stop detecting light. The pineal gland starts dumping melatonin into the system. It promotes sleepfulness and it allows, it promotes repair and, and it has very potent antioxidant activity. So that, that was a classical, I guess, circadian biology understanding of, of melatonin. But what Scott and his, and his partner in research, Dr. Russell Ryder have researched for a very long time is that, um, and have good evidence is that the, the mitochondria in every single cell are also producing melatonin, meaning that you've got this subcellular melatonin in addition to this circulatory melatonin. And what the way that they think about it is that on exposure to infrared light and even and UVA as well, that the mitochondria inside every single cell that is exposed to this light is able to produce melatonin and that role of that melatonin is to deliver 
very, very targeted antioxidant capability. And this makes sense because if you think about the electron transport chain and the, the way that the mitochondria produces energy for the cell, that that's not going to be a, a perfect process. They're going to be letting off some free radicals here and there that have the potential for to cause oxidative stress in the cell. So it makes sense that they've evolved an inherent mechanism to dampen down that oxidative stress with melatonin that kind of gets made at that site. And I, I really think about it as like an engine cooling system. So imagine if you ha had an engine that's getting hot, but if you've got a water cooler, a radiator, whatever, that's that's attached onto that mechanism, then it's it's going to run without burning out. And that's how I think about the melatonin that gets made right there at, at the cellular level. So so melatonin is, is this unique antioxidant. And the reason is because its metabolites are themselves antioxidants. So you basically can get a cascade of antioxidant oh. effect based on, on one molecule. And that's one reason why it's it's so so effective. And the this idea of subcellular or mitochondrial melatonin makes a lot of sense when we realize that going back to the beginning of the interview, that we evolved from primitive bacteria and that primitive bacteria make melatonin. So mm -hmm. we, we can see that they, they use melatonin for oxidative stress and, again, to, to regulate their circadian biology. And if we in every cell have a vestigial, thousands of vestigial bacteria in, in a neuron or in a cardiomyocyte, then we're producing a lot of oxidative stress. It makes sense that if they have vestigial bacteria that they'll also produce melatonin. So that's that's this fascinating implication. And what what Scott showed is that infrared light is can penetrate. So it's a longer wavelength. It can penetrate into the skin and up to eight, ten centimeters through through clothing when we're outside. And near infrared is, is always present throughout the day. It just changes in in proportion to other forms of, of light, visible and, and non-visible, but it's always there. So what he found is that even when we're walking outside in, in nature, the leaves and the trees reflect near-infrared light to basically bathe our bodies in, in this light. And when he ran the numbers, because he's an optics engineer, this is some very, very unique thinking that you you maybe you wouldn't get from a clinician or an MD, but you, you would get from an engineer, is that about six percent of the total number of cells in an adult are going to be contacted by near-infrared light when you're walking outside in, in the forest or in nature, meaning that 60% of our cells are going to be producing melatonin on just simply by walking outside. This changes for pregnant fet for fetuses, for pregnant baby, babies in, in, the, in the womb, and for children. Because of their, their surface area and their size, children are going to get 100% of their cells exposed to near-infrared light. And what Scott found is that the transmission of amniotic fluid essentially corresponds to the wavelength of near-infrared light, meaning the amniotic fluid surrounding baby is designed by nature to collect near-infrared photons and essentially bathe the baby in these light photons, presumably to help baby make melatonin and maybe some other functions that we're not yet aware of. But that that is the degree to which, and this was only discovered very recently, this is the degree to which we're still yet to fully understand 
the the complete and essential role of sunlight in in health. And as you as you mentioned at the beginning of this question, is we're not getting any of that light when we if someone's living a typical indoor existence. One because the light is predominantly blue and there's no non-visual light and the fact that most people are, are living that lifestyle every day so when, when this comes to cancer we can think about melatonin is that this fitted into the first two points that i raised which is one people are not getting only getting blue light so they're not making melatonin in those those skin cells in those where they they might be developing malignant cells and two, they're having disrupted circadian rhythm. So both their subcellular melatonin and their cir- circulatory melatonin is going to be knocked down or not working properly. And when, as you mentioned, uh, melatonin, one of its roles is to regulate uh, apoptosis. So malignancy is basically when the cell becomes immortal and decides to, to fail in its ability to arrest its cell cycling and mitochondrial dysfunction is is key in that because when you break the mitochondria you get dysregulation or problems with the expression of genes in in the nucleus so mm-hmm. that's that's i guess the the high level mechanism of how when you mess with your body's melatonin system you could get not only skin cancer but a range of other cancers and when we look at cancer incidence by latitude and there's a there's extensive literature that shows cancer incidence increasing with decreasing vitamin d levels and yet when they've supplemented people with vitamin d they haven't been able to correct or cure though that kind of that difference and what what that i believe that represents is vitamin d is a proxy of sunlight exposure because people who are getting sunlight they've built their vitamin d they're probably also getting near infrared because they're outside in various amounts. So it's possibly just a proxy of how much near infrared and melatonin that we made throughout the day and throughout the night that is reflecting that lower cancer and heart disease and rates that that we notice with increasing vitamin D levels. Yeah, awesome. I want to touch on briefly that, you know, the first point I made in the in the crux of this belief that uv light causes radiation and you know skin cell culture therefore it's conflated to cancer in the living organism right jalal posted this on instagram that all of those experiments are done with narrow band artificial uv light therefore at best it's a red herring because uv light and full spectrum sunlight are just not it's not the same right? The red light that balances the UV light is a critical factor if you want to consider the mechanisms of UV light. And so you're conf- it, we, the, the population conflates the two. Artificial UV light in a, in a Petri dish now is sp- full spectrum sunlight being harmful on, on a body. It's, it's very reductionist. There's, there's no nuance. There's no context. And that's the main point I want to like talk about in this podcast. And Max is here to bring us that nuance, that detail, that context, because he himself is in the crux of it in Australia. They have, they are in dire need of sun, but they avoid it like the plague. So it's our job to, to spread this message one episode or one conversation at a time. 
Definitely, and, and I'll, I'll just make a quick point on that. And you're 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 100 correct. It's it's reductionist, and it's really taking the the UV light completely out of context and extrapolating that mm. in a way that just just is not applicable. You know, it reminds me of those, you know, the the cardboard cutout Ferrari compared to it to the real Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the guys just holding the cardboard Ferrari. You can't you can't look at an isolated ultraviolet band without the balance of the other wavelengths and then you look at a cell culture so there's two problems here one that you're not using representative light wavelengths and two you're not using representative cells because you, you you're it's not the context it's not the natural context of of humans in the natural environment so it is yeah there's there's problems with the i guess the external validity of that science which is the ability to extrapolate that 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 science out so yeah it's mm-hmm. that's a that's a great point and it is very it's very important because if we're basing our recommendations on that type of data and that yeah. type of literature then people are not getting the complete story and you know as dr jack cruz likes to say you know the half truth always leads to full lie and i think that that's that's essentially what's what's being what's happening right and the last point I want to touch on real quick is epidemiology. We've brought out epidemiology a couple times in this podcast. And invariably, you know, a person will cite this study, that study that shows, you know, melanoma incidence or skin cancer increases with like sun exposure, something like that. And I just want to point out that one, those studies are the most susceptible to manipulation. You got to see who's funding them. You can. You can mess with the groups, you know, the, the the categories of the groups. Like it's a very manipulable study, right? The structure of it is very susceptible to that. So, yeah, the field of epidemiology has its benefits and it has its drawbacks. And mm-hmm. I think some of some of the most important studies that we've we've had have been epidemiological. And to, I guess to, to break it down for the, the listener, we have we can only derive a, a causative claim yes. if we have controlled for if we basically have have controlled so so a randomized controlled trial basically splits people into two groups one group gets an intervention one doesn't get the intervention the other the other variables are controlled for and therefore we can compare only that that single factor and confounding which is this idea of another third factor that we haven't measured actually being respons- responsible for the observed outcome. Theoretically, a randomized control trial accounts for confounding. So that, that the idea is that if you do an RCT, you can get a causative, you can get an answer to a causative question. If you don't control for, if you don't do an interventional trial, if you do an observational trial that is simply looking at, say, groups of people, then you, you are best at getting an associational, you're getting an associational relationship. And the associational relationship is, isn't causal because you, you haven't controlled for all, all the confounders. You're not 100% sure that the factor that you're looking at is causally implicated. And, you know, the most classic way to explain this is that, you know, if you, you, you found a whole bunch of people, or you, you had a group of people, or two groups of people, one carried cigarette lighters and one didn't carry cigarette lighters and then you looked at the incidences of lung cancer you might erroneously assume that carrying a cigarette lighter causes lung cancer 
But of course it doesn't. It's because the people who carry cigarette lighters are smokers and the, the cause of mm-hmm. the role is the, is actual smoking. But in, unless that, that, that's the degree to which we can be con- confused by associational evidence. The, the benefit of, of, of epidemiology, especially long term, is when we're looking at a really hard endpoint like all cause mortality, because it's as concrete an outcome measure as any, you know, did the person die or did they not die? And that's where I think most of that, the long-term epidemiology is really beneficial. Some of the most, most unrigorous epidemiology is nutritional epidemiology because they essentially, typically they give people a food questionnaire to recall about what they ate, you know, over, <laughs> over a year and then look at outcomes. Yeah. And they're so, it's so prone to, what's known as recall bias, other forms of confounding that it's, it's literally not even worth the paper it's, it's printed on. So the, 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 the point is that epidemiology can be beneficial, but when it's used to inform claims without, without nuance or without delving into, into causality or being able to tease out that causality, then it's, it, can, it can send us on the, on the wrong path. And yeah, nutrition is one aspect, but in, in this context that we, we're talking about, we can correlate skin cancer with, with sun exposure, but what else were those people doing? So, so the people that developed melanoma, yeah, they, they they might have had a couple of severe sunburns, but they what else were they doing? Were they eating a diet that was rich in in seed oils? They were under artificial lights. They n- none of these they had disrupted circadian rhythms. N- none of these other factors are being controlled for. So. Yes, we can see an associational increase in, in skin cancer, but was it the sun per se or was it all these other factors that their atrophic skin, their lack of a solar callus, that essentially conspired and in constellation lowered the threshold such that they developed a, a cancer? Yeah, so that's the that's the point I wanted to emphasize too. Like epidemiology is a tool and we that tool is misused to perpetuate certain notions that the sun causes skin cancer it's done no debated about it it's at best it's a tool in the sense that it will point you to trends and if those trends have underlying mechanisms that you can explore then that's significant so what have we done in this what has max done in this podcast so he's laid out epidemiological studies that show vitamin D levels that have low that are low in melanoma patients he's laid out the 2016 Sweden study you know then we investigate okay could there be a mechanism underneath that obviously there's no mechanism to lay, to carrying a lighter and that in of itself causing lung cancer right so Epidemiology, the main thing I want to emphasize is correlation is not causation, but it demands an investigation. And what you investigate is a mechanism. And when you investigate the mechanisms of the body that we've evolved to have, it's the evidence just overwhelmingly points to sunlight being beneficial when you use it correctly. Sunlight being taken out of context, being demonized for no reason and there's other factors we could talk about forever max like vitamin d supplementation how that's not equivalent how you know there's billion dollar industries that are behind this 
you know, fact that that want to push it. Certain people want to block it, block out the sun, like all this stuff. But if we, if you yeah, want depend, to, depending depending on how conspiratorial or not you want to get, <laughs> yeah. you know, you could go you know, on. You listen. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I Jack Cruz. He said, you know, if you get in the sun, you don't need Rockefeller's medicine. I mean, I don't know to what degree that's intentional, but I, I will give you. I will give you this example: is that there are medications, and this is not related to the to skin cancer, but it's related to POMSI. There, are, mm-hmm. there are medications that are designed to target proopiumanacortin to reduce appetite, and I know, I know of one that is a combination of now, Trexone and Bupropion, that is specifically designed to target POMSI, potentiate the action of, of POMSI. And then now, Trexone is to remove the endorphin, the beta endorphin and the endorphin. There's a negative feedback loop that might stop the potentiation of the anorexic or the kind of appetite suppressing effect of POMSI in, in the hypothalamus. So, pharma knows about this effect mm-hmm. because they've designed a drug a drug to directly target it so you can you can try and take this medication to reduce appetite if you're overweight or you can stimulate POMC naturally by getting in in uv light so that's that point is just to emphasize that one pharma knows about the role of POMC in metabolism Mm -hmm. and the fact that 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 POMC is so central to energy homeostasis and weight weight gain and so you can you can disintermediate or you can take out pharma from the picture by simply getting actually evolved sunlight. <laughs> Centralization <laughs> and decentralization in the nutshell. Yeah. So t- to wrap this episode up, I want to just finish off with a couple of quick questions and a last little thing. So Max, what time is it over there right now? So we just... We're getting into it, the sun's coming up, so it's almost about nine a.m. here. Nine a.m. over there. So, yeah. you're a full time doctor. You hold down a podcast, and you go interviews. How much would you say that time? How much time would you say that takes in your week? Like, I, I bet it's a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's quite busy. So we, you know, work like forty hours a week, and then in in my clinic, and then. Podcasting recording can take five, six, seven hours a week, depending on on what we're doing. So, yeah, it's it's, it's busy, that's for sure. So, yeah, in this context, because I've I'm I'm in the game pretty new, and I'm I have a full time job myself. It's hard, you know. There's a there's a lot on the side that people that I wasn't privy to when before I started this. So, I wanted to ask you. What what events in your life, what life experiences have shaped you to, you know, what drives you to put this message out, to go the extra mile? What in your past has led you to this point to do more for the better? Yeah, I, I think it's a sense of frustration or dis, discontentment with this idea that people aren't getting the information that they need to help themselves. And I'm I'm okay if someone decides to continue a lifestyle behavior that's made them sick. That I respect everyone's autonomy to to do that to make those decisions for themselves. But if someone hasn't been given information that could potentially reverse their disease, prevent them from getting that disease, 
avoid them from needing a, a medication, whether that's for three months or lifelong. If someone hasn't got that information, then to me, we, we as doctors, we failed that patient. And that's, that's just simply not good enough. And then when you add in the aspect that a lot of medications or treatment protocols have meaningful side effects that cause people suffering, then it's it's just not it's not right in in my book, and I think that those of us who have an understanding or of how things might work, and in a way and able to explain that in a way that can help people, then then to me then then I have an obligation to put that information out there, and and again it's it's not about making anyone do anything; it's simply giving people options, and often patients that I see they're not interested in making any lifestyle changes for whatever reason and that's fine i will help them and we'll we'll prescribe medication because that's that's the choice that they've made but the the crux of of patient care in my mind of ethical patient care which is the the commitment that that i and other doctors made when we got into this profession is that first we should do no harm and the the, the least harm intervention is a is a lifestyle intervention so to, to me, the, the podcast and the talks and, and everything is, is my doing my part and doing my role in, in giving people this information to help, help themselves. To uphold the, the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, and, that's and, the one thing. And a, and a big part of that, and that big, big, I mean, everyone's had a family member who's been sick and, and my own health journey is part of that. So I guess seeing those, having those encounters is, has been the fuel for the fire. Right on. I love it. Yeah. This, this has been great. We've, we've laid out a whole comprehensive story, a lot of side aspects to this, to this topic. Guys, the sun, the sun, like the medical system and doctors being told to tell their patients, avoid the sun in my opinion, is a Hippocratic sin when you consider what Max has laid out in this episode, all the mechanisms, the the context that's called evolution, all the, you know, the ways these studies and things can be manipulated to point the other way to, to form another belief that's contrary to what nature has in store for us. So it's our job to spread this message one talk at a time. And if you have any final parting words, any words you'd like to share for my audience, that would be good. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I guess my, my advice would be is to make the effort to build your solar callus. If you're, if you're going to get deliberate sun exposure and get in the sun, like Ken, Kenford's doing, then the actual onus is on you to use the sun properly. And that involves regulating your circadian rhythm it involves getting in that sun in, in the early morning so you're getting plenty of red and 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 infrared it involves avoiding eating a bunch of refined seed oils rich in omega-6s get those out of your diet eat fresh seafood wild caught seafood eat saturated animal fats so you're reducing your likelihood of 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 burning um get out of of artificial light and or cover up when you are when you're under artificial lights. When I was working in the emergency department, I'd have my, <laughs> obviously I've been wearing my scrubs, but I've, I've got my cardigan on, so my, my arms are covered. I have a scrub cap on, so my head was covered. I have my mm-hmm. UVX blue light, 
blue light blocking glasses. So I would that would be my getup when I was working in 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 the hospital. So c- cover yourself from from artificial light and do all these things that will build your melanin. So you can and then gradually expose yourself. So and we this is the essentially the advice that people need to think about is the 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 finer your your skin is so the people with very very pale skin because that is a risk factor for developing melanoma is people with very very pale skin red hair you need to titrate your uv exposure based on your your fitzpatrick skin type so the paler you are the less proportional uv you can afford to get before going inside going in the shade because we talked about sunscreen and sunglasses aren't aren't useful or, or shouldn't shouldn't be the go-to but what you need to use is shade you need to use go inside when you've had enough uv so it's safe for you to use that red and ir window as much as you can and then slowly progress into the uva and uvb gradually progressively to build your solar cap solar callus and it might only be five minutes if you're really atrophic and you're really you know like all them out of lord of the rings you might only need to start at five minutes then 10 minutes and it's just a progressive overload and and the key is consistency because again the sun is a hormetic stressor just like doing chin-ups so you or, or any other form of exercise you need to be consistent and you need to slowly gradually progressively load load up and that's that's how you can use the sun sun safely. So my advice would be that it takes effort, it takes intentionality, use it safely, but really address those lifestyle factors that we talked about that are likely to be underlying why people are developing skin cancers. And look, if you if you want to learn more, we are I'm about to launch a 30 day circadian health course that's going to be starting in November, which has got some basic lessons. We're mostly talking about circadian regulation. We're not going to be doing as much on the solar callus yet but that that will come later but it's going to be a kind of supportive environment to help people walk walk through the circadian lifestyle changes and if you want to follow my work i've got a podcast as you mentioned again it's called the regenerative health podcast on youtube and the spotify spotify apple uh, podcasts and you can follow me on twitter dr max dr sorry max bullhain md or instagram dr underscore max underscore bullhain and we've got an event that we're working on at the same time, which is called Regenerate. And that's my vision of how we're going to move medicine and we'll move health forward. And it's based on circadian and quantum health, animal-based diets and regenerative farming. So we're working on that. We've just got our first five videos up on our YouTube page. You can go to Regenerate Oz or I can give you the link, Ken, but that might be the easiest. And that's something that we'll be we'll be doing in the future. So you can watch some some talks from Jalal's got a great talk about introduction mm-hmm. to quantum and circadian biology. So yeah, those, those are my links. Yeah, and th- thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure having you on. All right, guys, this was this was great. I loved having this talk. Very much needed conversation to just fully unpack this whole notion of the sun causes skin cancer on rat. So without further ado. I'll see you guys on the next episode of the Lighthouse Podcast. Cheers.